Good morning. It's good to see you all here this Father's Day morning. You know, with all the things that are going on in the world right now, it seems like there is no hope to, with, with some people. But we do have hope, and our hope is found in Christ alone. Stand with me if you would.
seated. Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. It is good to be here with you, and not just back up here, but out here with you. This is the first Sunday that I've actually gotten to sing with you all since sometime in March. Uh, I've been up there in the booth, so I've been here looking down, not looking down, but looking down, literally, on you all, and uh, listening to you sing, and getting you in the mix out there so folks at home can hear you and participate with us, but it is good just to be here and to be able to sing with you today. What is a special occasion? Uh, This year, I'm sure you're well aware, it's been a year unlike any others, and uh, our kids have been really affected by that, and I know you parents and grandparents, you know that, but some of the ones who are probably most affected this year are some of our seniors. Uh, This is not the year that they were expecting. Most of you all remember going into your senior year of high school with high hopes and dreams and expectations and all the fun that that was going to bring with proms and graduations and senior trips and homecomings and all of these different things, uh, starting on whatever team you're on or in whatever club you're in, having some type of leadership position, and that just didn't happen for these kids. But uh, we wanted to do something special for our graduates. And so we're not going to do a lot this morning, but we do want you to know who they are. We've got three of them this year. They're all from Hurricane High School. I don't know how that happens, but uh, Winfield must not be doing something right. No, we uh, have three kids from Hurricane who will be graduating this year. We want to let you know who they are, kind of what they're planning, so you'll know how to be praying for them. We also have a small gift that we just want to give them. It's not anything major, but it is something that we hope as they take and they use uh, in the months and years to come. They're going to think back about this church family, what this church family means to them, the way it's poured into their lives. And they'll remember, more importantly, what Christ was trying to do through you all in their lives. And uh, they'll constantly have not only that reminder, but but that uh, rekindling of what it is that God tried to do and say to them while they were here. So we want to recognize them. We're going to put some pictures up on the screen, see if you recognize some of these faces, and then uh, we're going to have them come up. Of course, Maddie Cox. So Maddie, come on up. Maddie uh, was a member of SCA. And, of course, the uh, famed show choir there at Hurricane High School that I'll not say the name of since I have one at Winfields High School. But uh, they were multiple championship uh, winning show choir. She's headed to Marshall in the fall. She's not quite sure of a major. She's leaning one way right now, but uh, we'll see what happens. But, Maddie, God bless you. And keep uh, just pursuing what God has for you and what he's placed in your life. See if you recognize this next face. Brooke Leffingwell. Brooke, if you'd come up. Brooke, as you saw, was a member of the band at Hurricane High School, but uh, she earned a bronze award, that that special rank in Girl Scouts, so she was involved in a local Girl Scout chapter there. Uh, She was also selected to the Marshall University Honor Band. She's performed a duet with, uh, if any of you all watched The Voice, one of the voice contestants, Blessing, at WVU. And she'll be continuing her education as well at Marshall University, where she plans to major in art or psychology, and she's wanting to go into art therapy on graduation. So, Brooke, congratulations, and God bless you in all your endeavors there. He was tired of listening to his daddy speak at a young age already. See if you recognize this face. Hunter Odom, come on up. Hunter's also graduating from Hurricane. He uh, received a Promise Scholarship, a Scholarship of Distinction, 
and an engineering excellence scholarship that he's going to be taking to WVU, where he's planning on uh, being in their honors college and in the chemical engineering program there. So, Hunter, God bless you, brother, and uh, just keep pursuing that passion that God's laid in your heart. Figure out a way to use that for him, even if you are at WVU. But before I hop off the stage, I did want to read just a brief passage that's applicable to our graduates and then offer a prayer for them and our services as well today. But in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 3, we find this passage. It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. I know in a lot of modern translations it says, commit your plans or your work to the Lord and, and your work or your plans will be successful. But that's not really the intent of this passage, just on that surface reading. That word established does mean that it's going to prosper and it is going to be successful, that God is going to make that thing take root and bloom and grow and produce fruit in what it does. But the first part of this verse doesn't just mean decide what you want to do and say, God, I'm doing it for you and I'll bless it and make it happen. But instead, notice what it says, commit your work, period your lives, and whatever it is that you find yourself doing, make that commitment now that, God, the only thing that I'm going to do, the only work that I'm going to do, is the work that you have planned for me and the work that you've laid out for me. And when we find the desire of our heart to do that work that God has given us to do, to pursue those things that God has given us to pursue, then we will, in fact, find that he will establish our work, and we will be fruitful, and we will find success, and we will find fulfillment and contentment in doing the things that he's laid out for us to do. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for this opportunity to gather here together and just to praise your name. God, even in recognizing our seniors and the accomplishments in their lives and what it is that they're pursuing, God, we're recognizing your work in their lives, your gifting in their lives. The, the abilities and the skills that you've placed in their lives, the passions that you've put in their heart for them to pursue, because, God, you desire to use them in those venues for your kingdom, to see people come to a knowledge of you. And so, God, that's our prayer for them this morning. But, God, that's our prayer for us, that in all our ways, all the work, all the plans that we do, Father, we're seeking your plan in our so that you may bring the success, so that you may bring the fruit for your kingdom and your glory. But God, be with us here today as we continue to sing, as we get into your word together. Help us, God, to be seeking your glory, your fame in all that we do. Keep that at the forefront of our minds in all that we hear this morning. God, even as you change us and make us more like the people you've called us to be, but God, it's for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray this morning. Amen. Stand with us as we continue to sing.
Well, good morning. We want to welcome you to Good Shepherd, and uh, today is uh, Father's Day as well as uh, Graduate Recognition Day, and so we want to wish our fathers a happy Father's Day. Hope you have a wonderful day. We also welcome those who are watching by live stream today. And um, being as it is Father's Day, I actually had planned a Father's Day message from the book of Proverbs. But due to some events that transpired this week, I've decided to uh, continue in our study in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be tonight today in, in Revelation chapter 7. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court issued what some have called <clears throat> the Roe v. Wade of Christian liberty. The Bostick versus Clayton County decision of the Supreme Court determined that a person's sex, understood in uh, 1964 when the civil rights legislation was written as being biological sex, they have determined that it also means sexual orientation, 
and gender identity. And there's really no way of minimizing the moral and cultural impact of that ruling. While it was limited to the decision or to the, to the Title VII Employment Act, uh, it opens the door for all kinds of tax, everything from women's sports to education to the tax code to health insurance to uh, pronouns and more. But most significantly, this ruling will affect religious liberty. You have witnessed the moment in American history when the gates of religious liberty were breached. Believe me, it is not a matter of if all these things will come flooding in, but simply a matter of when, how fast. This is just another example of how quickly things can uh, change in our world, just, just overnight. And what is the opposite of Christian liberty? Is it neutrality? No. It's suppression. It's even persecution. And may I say that persecution is coming to America? It is coming. But per per persecution is not only coming to America, it is also coming to the world. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, he said there's going to come a, a persecution that is so intense, so overwhelming, that there is nothing to be done except to flee as fast as you can. Don't even go back in your house to get your coat. Just get out, he says, of Judea. And Jesus was speaking definitely, clearly, to the nation of Israel, to Jewish people when he said that. Do you find it interesting that the tiny little nation of Israel with a population of less than 4 million people in comparison to the over 7 billion people in our world constantly gets receives such enormous amount of the media's attention, far beyond its size would warrant. The only explanation for that is the extraordinary fact that it indicates the central place of Israel in the program of God. God simply will not let the world forget about the nation of Israel. And the Old Testament, of course, is central in the Old Testament. And, of course, uh, uh, when you look at the, that nation uh, and all that happened, you see that God actually wrote the history of the world as it relates to the nation of Israel. The entire history of the world is revealed to us through, through the, the lens of Israel. Everything centers around them. And even when you come to the Gospels in the New Testament, Israel is still the focus of attention. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he says, don't go to the, to the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And even in the New Testament, primarily written these epistles to the church. The Apostle Paul in his great epistle to the Romans dedicates three full chapters to the nation of Israel. 
In chapter 9, he talks about their past, how God has dealt with them. In chapter 10, he talks about their present, how they now exist among the nations in unbelief. And then in chapter 11, he talks about how God is going to redeem Israel and how he's going to use them in the future. And I find it strange that, that many commentators on the book of Revelation and other passages of the Scripture virtually ignore this remarkable future that God has promised for the nation of Israel. God has plainly declared what He intends to do, and He intends to save Israel. And Revelation chapter 7 reveals how God is going to do that, and that is where we have come today in Revelation chapter 7. As we put up our first graphic this morning, I just want to remind you that the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And the Apostle Paul describes that to us very clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That event begins what we know as the great tribulation period. And in that tribulation period, God is dealing with the nation of Israel. During our study of, of Revelation 6, we have watched the unrolling of this seven-sealed scroll that the Lamb took from the hand of God containing the uh, title deed to the earth. And as he has unrolled this scroll, we have seen these judgments uh, unfold as well. We've seen the four horsemen ride out through the earth, leaving devastation and terror in their wake. Then we saw the slaughter of thousands of martyrs that occurred during the great persecution of this time. Again, persecution is coming to the world. And finally, we read the description of the great upheaval that is going to occur in the universe in the last days when every mountain is moved out of the place and, and shaken and people are going to cry out for the, for the rocks to fall upon them and to save them from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Now, to many who read these kind of things, when people are looking at the book of Revelation, it sounds like, you know, a lot of doom and gloom. But what we often fail to realize is that what God is doing in all of these judgments is that he is going somewhere. He is accomplishing something. And through the, the difficulties, through the difficult times, through the tribulation, God is bringing about a great redemption, a redemption that has never before been seen in the world. Now, granted, most of the time, the emphasis seems to be on the judgment. But God is actually doing something great. You see, Christians are, are not pessimists. They're, they're optimists, but they're also realists. We realize that we will have to go through these difficult times in order to be able to see the, a time of great peace and victory and blessing upon the earth. Our second graphic uh, shows us where we have been. We, we've seen the seven, uh, six of the seven seals, and before the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, it's as if God calls a timeout on the field. Uh, to use the language of uh, theater or drama, uh, there is an intermission. There's an interlude, as it were. And however you describe it, 
after all the judgments that we've seen in chapter 6, I mean, we're ready for a break. And during this interlude in chapter 7, God gives us what you might call a flashback. And he shows us that during all the judgments that we have been experiencing, we've been seeing here in chapter 6, that God was also doing another work at the same time. You know, in, in sometimes in movies, uh, a movie will flash back uh, to an earlier time in the central character's life and, you know, to, uh, to give us some fill-in of some significant events to make sense of what's going on in the present. And, and we have that kind of thing here in chapter 7. You see, we are going back to the beginning of the, the period of tribulation, and we're seeing what God has been doing in the midst of this time in terms of redemption. Because remember, we have both in the book of Revelation. There's judgment, certainly, but there's also redemption. And here we are introduced to the 144,000 probably the most famous number in the book of Revelation with the exception of 666. So who are the 144,000? Everybody wants to know. We've all heard that number. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that they are that number. And there are several other groups that say that they are that number or have uh, some really uh, interesting, if not strange, ideas about this. Well, uh, needless to say, the Jehovah's Witnesses are not the 144,000. Let me tell you who they are. These, this 144,000 are Jews from the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, and they are people who have come to realize that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah. And they have mourned over the fact that they have rejected Jesus Christ all of this time, and they have repented of their sin, and they have been redeemed. And now they are a part of a small group or a group of people that have been selected by God now to proclaim the truth of the reality of Jesus Christ to the known world during this difficult time known as the uh, time of uh, tribulation. And they will be protected from the divine holocaust of wrath that's going to be released during this time. All the trumpets and all the bowls that are yet to come. And they will be protected from the murderous efforts of Antichrist and his henchmen who are trying to wipe out all the true believers in God during this time. Their introduction here also answers the question that is asked at the end of chapter 6 in verse 17 where he says, the great day of the wrath has come. And the question is, who can stand? Well, the answer is the 144,000. They are the ones who will survive the time of the tribulation and they will enter into the millennial kingdom to Christ's kingdom that was promised beforehand, that they would have this millennial kingdom upon the earth, and they will literally, the Jewish people, will literally have a kingdom with Christ as their Messiah during that time. But it'll also be a time, you see, of judgment and disaster before this, but it'll also be a time of salvation. And some of the redeemed out of the tribulation we've already seen when we in the fifth seal. All these people who were who were persecuted, 
who were killed because of their testimony for Jesus Christ and their clinging to the word of God. We've already seen that. And the tribulation is the time of Israel's national salvation, which the prophets foretold. In graphic number four, I'll just remind you that we've already seen that the tribulation has other names that are all related to the, to the nation of Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's distress. It's called Daniel's 70th week and also the day of the Lord. The most detailed description of that event is found in Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Now listen to what God says. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. Now, understand what's happening here. The Jewish people are recognizing Jesus Christ as the real Messiah. And they are broken because they have rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah all these years. And they think back on the fact that they were the ones who pierced him. They were the ones who crucified him and rejected him. And in chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, In that day... A fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Forgiveness is coming. And it says in verse 8, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. My friends, this is the time of which the Apostle Paul spoke in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26. And he says, so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And you see, our passage today introduces this group that will be preserved during the time of the tribulation. These are the people that have been redeemed by God during this time of testing. The tribulation is not just for judgment. The tribulation is a time when the people are going to be tried. They're going to be tested. It's the difficulty. It's the adversity that comes in their lives. There goes many of them to look up to God and say, Oh, God, hear us. And they're going to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. This is part of God's salvation, allowing them to go through the adversity and the hardships of these days. And before that final fury hits, they are going to be set apart to proclaim the gospel to the world, and God's going to give them a special protection before all the worst of it really hits. Now, John's vision 
reveals three characteristics of the redeemed of Israel. But these are not just characteristics of Israel. These are characteristics of all the redeemed of all the ages. Because, you see, there are three reasons why the redeemed can proclaim the gospel in difficult times. We can proclaim the gospel in difficult times. And friends, these are difficult times. There is nothing that is more needed in all the world than a proclamation of the gospel to a world in deep darkness. And God says, you can proclaim this gospel. Is it scary? Yes, it is. Absolutely, in every respect, it's scary in our world today. But listen, we can proclaim the gospel in difficult times, first of all, because the redeemed restrain God's wrath. The redeemed restrain God's wrath. It tells us in verse 1 of chapter 7, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. That phrase, after this, uh, introduces a new vision. And the focus shifts from the judgment that has been being poured out in chapter 6 now to the redemption that has occurred among the, the Jewish people. So we're, we're looking at something different. And as the vision unfolded, John saw four angels. And, of course, angels are frequently associated with God's judgment in the Bible. And these four angels, it says, are, are seen standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, skeptics often derived John's poetic use of this uh, term, the four corners of the earth. Uh, they say it, it's, it re- reflects a, you know, a, a primitive, a pre-scientific understanding of the world, which people thought that the world was flat and, and square. But, but the phrase simply refers to the whole earth, and it, and it, and it designates the four points On the compass, that's all it does. These are the directions from which these four winds blow, north, east, south, west. I mean, these these are the, the directions. And these powerful angels ensure that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. The wind here is a picture of God's judgment. And that judgment is being held back. It's being restrained by these angels so that these angels essentially turn off Earth's engine, its, its atmosphere. There'll, there'll be no wind, no breeze, no waves breaking on the shore, no movement in the clouds of the sky. It's going to be deathly still. It's the calm before the storm. And this is an incredible display of power. Dr. Henry Moritz writes, The circulation of the atmosphere is a mighty engine driven by energy from the sun and the earth's rotation. The tremendous powers involved in this operation become especially obvious when they are displayed in the form of great hurricanes and blizzards and tornadoes. These winds of the earth make life possible on earth through the hydrologic cycle. 
transporting waters inland from the ocean with which the water, to water the earth, yet the angels, only four of them, had turned off this gigantic engine. And, it, and John describes these angels as holding back. That's a strong word that suggests that the winds are struggling to be free from their restraint. I picture attack dogs, you know, like four Doberman pinchers that are, are growling and barking and lunging. They're on the end of, a, uh, of the, their leash. They're trying to get loose, and they're very scary and terrifying. Uh, just the thought of let, that someone letting them go. And these, these angels are, are holding back the, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that are yet to come. It's a scary picture here. So the next phase of God's wrath, you see, is temporarily being restrained. And we live in difficult times. There is every reason in the world for God to release his judgment on this world. Yet God is is holding back his judgment. This is an opportunity. This is a time for God's people to make known the truth of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the opportunity that God has given us. This is the window that he has opened. And friends, think about it. God has opened a window for our world. We live in America where there has been these years, centuries, of religious freedom. The window has been open, but we're not all that concerned about it sometimes. And the window is closing rapidly. That window is getting more and more narrow. In the Supreme Court decision that we saw this week, it's not going to be long. And persecution will come And it will be more difficult than ever to be able to really share the gospel because sharing the gospel is going to be declared hate speech. The gospel is the only hope for this world. But listen, we can proclaim the gospel in difficult times because God's wrath is being restrained on our behalf. But secondly, we can proclaim the gospel in difficult times because the redeemed receive God's protection. It tells us in verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea of the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, the reason for this temporary restraining of God's judgment is clear. As John sees another angel, in addition to the ones holding back the four winds, this angel, he says, was ascending from the rising of the sun. Now, that's just a poetic way of describing the east. And from John's position on the Isle of Patmos, the east would have been toward Israel, where the Messiah comes from, where these Jewish evangelists would come from, the 12 tribes. And so 
the angel, he says, had with him the seal of the living God. Now, a seal often referred to a, a signet ring, a signature ring. And that ring would have engraved in it a unique symbol of a king or a noble or someone of importance. And they would take that and they would stamp it into a glob of uh, warm wax and it would leave the impression of that ring in that wax and it would show that it was authoritatively theirs and that it was secure. Nobody had opened it. And so this is, this is a seal. It, 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 it carries with it the idea of, of ownership and protection. And the seal that he has is the seal of the living God. Now, God's often called the living God in contrast to the, to the dead idols that people worshipped. And this, this uh, living God, you see, he has, he has the power and the, and the right and the authority to carry out all the promises that he has made to his people. And the living God has a seal that he is going to put on the foreheads of his, says, of his bond servants. Now, interestingly, the Antichrist is going to do the same thing. You see, the Antichrist is a false prophet, a false deity, actually, who will also uh, uh, seal his followers with a counterfeit seal that we call the mark of the beast. And he claims that if his followers are sealed with this seal, they will be protected. Otherwise, they will die. You know, it's not new for God to put a seal on his people or a mark on his people. In the Old Testament, God marked Israel with blood on the doorposts and on the, the lentils when the death angel passed over and killed all the firstborn of the house of Egypt. He marked Rahab with a scarlet cord to protect her and her family when the, when the Jericho, city of Jericho was invaded by the Israelites. But the best illustration and the one that most cl closely parallels the passage that we're looking at today comes from Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 3. It says there, Then the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and what? Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in its midst. These people who are groaning over the abominations that are being committed, these are the godly, these are the righteous ones, the ones that are, are mourning over what is happening, the sin that is happening in the city. And he says in verse 5, But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. But the picture here is, is that everyone who was marked with this Mark on the forehead before the invasion of the city of Jerusalem was spared. Everyone else was lost in that, in the sacking of Jerusalem. And 
Similarly, these servants of God whose angel will be marking their foreheads, they are going to be spared during the tribulation. They're going to be protected through all these judgments. The fifth angel calls out authoritatively with a loud voice in verse 7 saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, the harm that will come upon the earth and the sea occur when, the, when these angels release the judgments of the trumpets and the bowls. They've been restraining. But, but, that, but that judgment awaits these servants being sealed. It's not going to happen until they are sealed. And notice that they're called bondservants. That tells us that they're already redeemed. See, these are people who have come to Christ. They have been preaching the gospel during the whole time. But now, when the the worst is about to hit, they are going to be especially sealed in this way, designated as being protected during the worst of the tribulation. You see, what is the seal? What's put on their foreheads? Well, if you look at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, we see these 144,000 again. He says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. What's on their foreheads? The name of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his Father. You say, is, is he, are they literally going to have Jesus tattooed on their foreheads in, in Hebrew? I don't know. And I don't think, I don't know if anybody else does either. It's possible. I mean, people get a lot of stuff tattooed on themselves today, don't they? Uh, It's possible. But what I do know is that Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is the seal of God. See, when you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You receive the very personal presence of God and his power and his grace dwelling in your life. God himself literally dwells within you. You are sealed with God. And did you know that the John chapter 6 and verse 27 tells us that Jesus himself was sealed by God? You say, well, what, how did that happen? Well, it was when the Holy Spirit came down and anointed Jesus so that he could in a mighty way carry out all the works that God had for him to do on the earth. He was sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Christ. And the same thing is happening here. When these 144,000 were sealed, they are baptized with Pentecostal power. And the Holy Spirit will come upon them with unction and glory and they will fearlessly and powerfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ across the world, and there will be an incredible revival of salvations, even in the midst of all the things that are going on in this dark and difficult world. And if you look at the rest of uh, Revelation chapter uh, 14, you see that these people are are godly people, that they are people of character, that they are faithful, that they're diligent, that they're holy, and that they're people that only, only the Holy Spirit can bring that about. 
in a person's life. They're also described as those who've been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. In other words, these are the first ones that get saved, and they're now the ones that are carrying the gospel message throughout the world. These Jewish evangelists will be the most effective missionaries the world has ever seen. They will be instrumental in the conversion of their own countrymen and of the Gentiles in the world. It'll be like having 144,000 Apostle Pauls running around. It's going to be an amazing day. See, and closely related to that, you see, is, is that we can take the gospel to the world in difficult times because we are protected by God. Is it difficult? Is it difficult to, to take the gospel to people in, the, in today's world? Absolutely. When you approach people, sometimes it's like they got four Doberman pinchers barking and growling and straining at the least to get, to get at your throat. Doesn't it seem that way sometimes? How, how people are so hostile toward the gospel? It seems that way. But listen. God has given us the opportunity. God has given us the grace to be able to go even in those difficult situations and proclaim the truth to people. There is hope for this dark world because God gives us his protection in the midst of that. And finally, we can proclaim the gospel in difficult days because the redeemed revive God's commission. The redeemed revive God's God's commission says in verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, how many tribes are there? There's 12, right? You'd think that would be enough for you to start, right? There's all the tribes, right? But he goes on. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. And from the tribe of Ishakar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, how many were sealed from each tribe? <laughs> You, get the, you kind of get the idea, right? And you put them all together, and you've got 144,000. And it just reminds you that these are Jewish believers who have come to realize who the Messiah really is, repented of their sin, and God has set them apart to proclaim the gospel to the world during this difficult time. Now, despite all of that, the plain unambiguous declaration of the text that the 144,000 who are sealed will come from every tribe of the sons of Israel, many persist to say, this is the church. And they cite New Testament passages that allegedly identify the church as being spiritual Israel. But that identification is, it's really, it's, um, it's tenuous. It's disputed. Uh, There is no clear declaration in the New Testament that the church is spiritual Israel. And in order to prove that, you have to go outside, or to try to prove that, you have to go outside of the book of Revelation because, see, you don't get that from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation says that these are from the tribes of Israel. 
And, and if you go with a, a typological interpretation that somehow Israel is a type of the church, in what sense is the church divided into 12 tribes? And why would you go to all the trouble of listing those methodically through that if it, if it has nothing to do with Israel? You see, the, the term Israel must be interpreted according to its normal Old and New Testament usage as a reference to the physical descendants of Abraham. And there's no, there's no, edu, edica, you know, no, uh, edu, excuse me, edegetical, exegetical reason for not interpreting that way. And there's no exegetical reason for not believing that these are literal numbers. They, and we've seen in Revelation, they're full of symbolism. And there is a symbolism to this and an idea of fullness and an idea of, uh, of uh, ruling because they are going to rule. But th- there's no reason not to take it literally in, the, in this sense. God sovereignly chose Israel out of all the nations to be his people. And he said to them, I am going to use you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. And he says, I am going, you are going to be the nation that I'm going to use to proclaim my name to the world. But did Israel do that? No, instead of following God and proclaiming God, they turned to idolatry and turned away from God. And what we have in the Old Testament in, in many regards is a history of God repeatedly bringing his own people through tribulation to, for the purpose of turning them back to himself. But eventually they get so far that God allows them to fall into judgment and they are taken into captivity for 70 years in the Babylon. But God still, even there, he has a remnant of people. And after that 70 years, what does God do? He restores them. He brings them back. And then we go into another history where God is dealing with his people over and over and over until finally we come to the New Testament and God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world and they reject him and they crucify him. And after even after he rises from the dead and the church is built, they are the primary persecutors of the church of Jesus Christ. And then, in A.D. 70, God allows the Romans to come in and totally wipe out Jerusalem. And with it, all the records, so that all the records of the tribes are gone. Only God now knows who is a part of what tribe. This is an incredible history. You see, God set them aside, and he turned to the Gentiles. So the question comes, has God rejected his people? And the answer comes very clearly from the Apostle Paul. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He says in 11.5, so, so at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And friends, listen, this 144,000 is a remnant chosen by grace. And the specific tribal names in this list are very interesting. And in fact, many people have tried to use this list because it's unusual, they say, to prove that this is the church. 
But can I tell you that there is no ordinary, there is no normal way of listing the 12 tribes. There are at least 19 different ways of listing the tribes in the Old Testament. Sometimes by, it's by order of birth. Sometimes it's by the blessing of Jacob. Sometimes it's by the blessing of Moses. Some, sometimes it's by the way they order they camped in the, in the tribes together. There are all kinds of ways in which they're, they're organized, and none of them agree with the way they're listed here in, uh, in Revelation. Um, although Reuben was the firstborn, Judah is listed first. Reuben, if you may remember, he forfeited his birthright as punishment because of his sexual misconduct with his father's concubine. There's also the omission of the tribe of Dan in favor of the priestly tribe of Levi. You remember, Levi didn't get land because they were the priests. But here, Levi is mentioned rather than Dan. Why, Why is that? I had an eight-year-old girl ask me that before the service began. So here's the answer. <laughs> because Dan fell into idolatry, engraved idolatry. In fact, Dan was practically lost from the edge of the tribe for a long time. We find out later that they will have uh, millennial blessings, but they're not chosen as a part of the group here that will take the gospel to the world. And then uh, similarly, the name Ephraim, is omitted in favor of uh, his father Joseph because Ephraim defected from from the from uh, the house of Judah. Also, Ephraim, like Dan, was consumed with idolatry, and his brother it says Manasseh was included because he was the faithful son of Joseph. You see, what we're looking here at here is simply the the fact that God is showing us that these people are uniquely, sovereignly chosen by God for this purpose. And this critical passage reinforces the biblical truth that God is not through with the nation of Israel. Though Israel failed in its mission to be a witness to the world, God is going to ultimately bring about this group of people and they will revive the commission that God originally gave to them. The original commission, you take the gospel to the world, now they are doing it. And just like it was promised that they would have a kingdom when they did that, they will then go into the kingdom, the literal kingdom that God has given to them, the millennial kingdom. And as a result, many people are going to be saved. Revival like the world has never seen. And it's going to occur in the midst of time when days are dark and difficult. And I would, I would advocate that we, as God's people, ought to renew our commitment to God's commission even now while we have a window. These are difficult days. These are hard times. The, bar, the dogs are barking and growling and intimidating. But friends, it's going to get worse. Those dogs are going to be let go. And it's not too far away. And we need to revive our commitment to God's 
commission because that is the only hope for anyone in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the book of Revelation. We're thank so thankful for so many answers that come to us as a result of studying this book. It has its challenges without any doubt. But Lord, we are grateful to, to know these great truths. And Father, we pray that you just enable us, you'd enable us by your grace, by your spirit that seals us, God, that we would yield to you and that we would be faithful to you to take the gospel to this lost world. God, help us to overcome our fears. We know it's a struggle. We, we admit it, Lord, that oftentimes we are afraid, that we're intimidated. But we ask you to help us to overcome that great struggle in our lives. And with, with love and with grace to, to make known the, the truth of, that Jesus Christ saves. We thank you that your son took upon himself all of our sin and rose from the dead. We're grateful for that incredible truth. We're, we're, we're grateful, Lord, for the life that you've promised us in Jesus Christ, for the future, for glory. And we pray that your name would be honored by our lives. Right now, Lord, I, I know that things are just crazy in this world. People seem so unsettled, so rambled, so dis disturbed. God, we pray for your the peace of your Holy Spirit to come up over our lives. God, to renew us, renew us our, in a, our passion for worshiping you and being faithful to you. Lord, just minister to the people here today and those listening at home. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And may I remind you that if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you've never truly given your life to him, you can do that today. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you to follow through with that. Uh, we will be dismissing uh, today from the back to the front. And uh, if you would congregate out in the foyer or on the uh, uh, portico, that would be great. Happy Father's Day.